Good morning, my friends. It is Wednesday, and that means it's Bible study. I missed you all last week. I hope that if any of you had spring break like I did, that you were able to get away and that you stayed safe. And I'm glad to be back with you today. As a just kind of housekeeping reminder, if you need to see the schedule of our Bible studies over these next few weeks, then visit our website, stmichael.org RBS, which is Rector's Bible Study. There, there's a button where you can click and see our entire spring schedule. We are now in it every Wednesday all the way through May 5th. May 5th is the last Wednesday of this year's Bible study, and we will meet every Wednesday through May 5th, including Holy Week. Next week is Holy Week. That means this coming Sunday is Palm Sunday. A week from this Sunday is Easter. I hope you have made your plans about worshiping either in your home church or here with us at St. Michael. If you visit stmichael.org Lent, you can click to see all the different services and experiences that we are offering through Holy Week and on Easter Sunday. And we've got three in-person services, both 5.30 p.m. on Palm Sunday, We've got our 6.30 a.m. Easter sunrise service. And then from 1.30 to 3 p.m. on Easter Sunday, we're doing a journey to Easter, very much like we did at Christmas, where you're welcome to come through the building, receive communion and a blessing, hear the music, and be in the church space at Easter time. I wish we could do services in person again, but good grief. We still can't get enough people in the church to warrant doing those in-person services. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel and I'm excited to see how many people are being vaccinated and fingers crossed, we're gonna be able to do a lot more very soon. So keep the faith, keep the hope. We will be together soon again as a regular worshiping congregation. I can't wait. Today, we are gonna be looking at chapter 16 of Revelation as we kind of are in the home stretch toward the end of this book. I am impressed with how many people have hung with me during Revelation. I hear regularly from people that it's just, it's dense, it's hard, it's weird. And I'm glad that you all are staying faithful to this study because it is dense and strange and weird. And I'm glad we're doing it together because I think it opens us up to a lot of what the first century Christ followers struggled with. And I think that's helpful for us in the 21st century as Christ followers, as we try to navigate our very complicated world to be the best disciples that we can be. So if you have not signed up for our email list, I encourage you to go to stmichael.org RBS, send Meredith a note, get on our email list so you can receive those Monday reminders to know what chapters we are studying and when. I also want to make sure you know that we have turned this into a podcast, and so if it is more convenient for you to listen, not watch this study, it's easier now than having to just listen to the audio of a video. You can actually have it download directly wherever you use your podcasts. If you just simply search for Rector's Bible Study, it will pop up, and I hope that makes it easier for you all who listen to this study instead of watch it to stay connected with us. Let's open with a prayer and we will get rolling. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for this beautiful day and we ask that you bless our time together. Open us up, fill us with your spirit, put your hand upon us that as we study your sacred word, we can be transformed. We can be inspired to be the disciples you have called us to be, courageous in the work that we do 
to help extend your arms of love into the world. May each one of us feel the strength of the giftedness that we have to help love your people, especially those who are most vulnerable. God, today we ask that you bless all those who need your healing touch most, those who are sick, those who are even near death, that they be lifted up by your presence and surrounded by those who can care best for them. And we ask you to calm the hearts of those who mourn, those who worry, those who are anxious, that they feel your deep presence and abiding love in them to know that your hope never dies, that we together can be the body of Christ and be part of your redeeming work now. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's jump on in. So, uh, chapter 16 is perhaps the beginning of the end. Chapter 16 really gets at kind of the rolling momentum of Revelation's end game. In chapter 16, chapter 16 is pretty straightforward, we get the seven bowls of wrath. Now, you've heard about these bowls of wrath a few different times in the chapters leading up to today. Well, now we're there. And we get the seven bowls of wrath poured out on the earth in multiple different ways by seven different angels. And we're going to go through each one today. But we're going to divide those seven bowls of wrath into two sections. Basically, you've got your first four plagues or bowls of wrath. They really are plagues. The first four plagues and the last three plagues. They are, in a sense, separate, connected in the sense that it's all the momentum toward the end, but they really are four different, two different groups of plagues. And so we're going to take the first four together and then the last three together. So we're going to start with the first four plagues, which really are the natural plagues. So let's look at chapter 16 together. We're going to start at verse 1, and we're going to read verse 1 through 4 and then jump down to 8 and 9. Ready? Here we go. Then I, John, heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured his bowl on the earth, and a foul and painful sore came on those who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Now jump to verse 8. The fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, but they cursed the name of God who had authority over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So we'll pause there. In order to get into this chapter properly, I want to spend a moment talking about the idea of wrath. Wrath sounds really horrible, right? Wrath is such a visceral, evil kind of word. And talking about bowls of wrath or God's bowls of wrath or in other places in scripture, God's wrath, 
can feel a little strange because, meh, I mean, I, I would imagine that most of us prefer God not to be wrathful. And so I want to take a minute to just unpack this word wrath so that we get a better sense of what it is that we're really talking about. So let's start with the kind of God we tend to like. We like a God who is loving, you know, one who cares, one who goes after the lost sheep, one who heals the blind. But there's a lot in scripture that talks about God's judgment, right? God reaps God's judgment. And we hear here, we hear in this chapter that God pours out his wrath upon the earth. So as I was thinking about this, I tried to imagine if we were to describe God, I think most of us would ultimately land in a description of God that sort of feels like a friend. You know, God who is a, a strong friend, right? A kind of person or friend who would support us, who would care for us, who would walk with us, who would inspire us. And most of the time, we don't get to the God who is just simply God. And that's what I kind of want to play with for just a moment. God is God. I mean, like God, God. And so for us to limit God to something that feels good or to something that is meeting our needs is really quite improper, incorrect. God cannot be limited. I mean, it's kind of, you know, dumb to say it, but God is God. And so God can be and do whatever and all things all at once. God is complex. God is everything. And so in this moment, I want us to kind of settle into the idea that God is not just a feel good all the time, that God is also challenging, that God is nudging and needling, and pushing and molding. And sometimes that doesn't feel good. Here, John describes God's wrath. Now, obviously, John was not writing in English. And so John in Greek is using the word thymus. Thymus is typically translated as wrath. That is a perfectly good translation. But if we look at the way that thymus is used in a few other places, it's not used very much in scripture. In fact, it's really used in Revelation and Romans. The implication here is perhaps not quite wrath. I want to see if we might tweak this word a little bit and use a word that I think is more helpful to understanding what is going on here, and that's the word indignation. Indignation is not a word we use very often, but indignation is a bit more passive. It still has an anger component to it, but wrath, to me, feels more active. Indignation almost feels a bit more passive. Theologically speaking, what's going on here in Revelation is that God is allowing the evil to thrive, the evil to flare, the evil to really gain power. 
And to me, that's less wrathful and more like righteous indignation. As if God, who is good, allows the evil to take over the world and to do these bad things. And rather than stepping in and trying to help us or defend the people from the evil or try to direct the evil elsewhere, God says, all right, let the evil flare up. Let the evil take control. Let the people who have yet to be redeemed, yet to repent, feel the full weight of the evil that they have unleashed. In that sense, God is less spiteful, less mean when it comes to wrath, and almost more laissez-faire, kind of hands-off when it comes to wrath. Hmm, I kind of feel like that's good. (laughs) Maybe I won't say much more about that. Um, I just kind of wanted to name the elephant in the room. Wrath is not a word we like. Wrath is not a word we like to associate with God. Um, It is not incorrect here, but I also think this is one of those moments where we might use a few English words that are all perfectly appropriate translations of the original language, in this case Greek, so that we understand a more round and whole sense of what is going on. I'm going to keep using the phrase bowls of wrath. That is how the biblical translators have decided to translate that word. But when we hear the word wrath, I want you to make it bigger than it might be in its feeling, right? It's not quite as ugly or as negative as it might be. I think it's a bit more just kind of letting the bad play. Okay. This is all very important because there's some theological truth about the first four plagues that fit my interpretation of thymus as indignation rather than as kind of direct active anger, and that will be important. But I see we have a question or a statement. Um, Madeline writes, Revelation introduces us to the most to a much different Jesus than presented by the other books of the Bible, except perhaps the book of Daniel. Is this the Jesus Peter wanted to see when he was arrested? Oh, that's a good question. Okay. So I will say, Madeline, my my assumption here in your question is that it's, you might mean God. I mean, I know Jesus is God and all that stuff, but I'd I'd like to kind of make it the bigger word, right? It's not necessarily Father, Son, Spirit. It's really kind of God, kind of the global divine. Um, So what you're saying here is that there's a different look of God, perhaps, in Revelation, or especially right here, than we get in many of the other books, except maybe Daniel. Um, I would say God in the Old Testament in particular is not warm fuzzy. If you look especially in the first five books, I mean, really, it's most of the Old Testament, um, God is powerful. And sometimes that power can be interpreted as, I don't know, mean or judgy or vengeful or spiteful or something like that. But What I want us to think of is that God is all-powerful. If you've been with me for any amount of time, you've probably heard me say something to the effect of, I like 
God or Jesus, not as my friend, but as my God or my savior, right? I got friends. I don't really need Jesus to be my buddy. I really need someone to save me, someone to be powerful in the face of a world that is so full of evil and negativity. I, I kind of want God to be God. And I think for many of us, it's I'm trying to decide how to make this most succinct. For those of us who have a significant amount of agency or power ourselves, we tend not to need God to be powerful because most of the time in our lives, we have all the power we need. What we see in most of scripture is a story about God that appeals best to the weak, appeals most to those who are outside the structures or the systems of power. And I'll just be honest, most of us watching this video have a lot of power. We may not always feel like we have a lot of power, and certain of us here in this study are outside perhaps the most powerful norms or structures in our society. But even then, we are Americans who are together on a Wednesday morning watching on a device using some internet in the comfort of some building. Let's be honest, when it comes down to it in the global scheme of things, we all have some power. I say all of that because the more power one has, the less one really wants God to be God. I just want that to sink in. Jesus did not die by accident. All right, Jesus did not die because he decided it was time to die. Jesus died because he threatened those in power. Those in power who felt threatened executed him. That is what happened. And so for us to somehow weaken the message of Jesus undermines the entire message of God. In Revelation, what we see writ large is that God has created a world in which love is true, but for love to be true, that means we get a choice to love God or not love God. When we choose God, we choose the good. When we choose not God, then we are actually choosing something that is not the pure good. Now that may not mean that we're choosing full evil, but we're at least choosing less than 100% good. Now over time, those kinds of choices begin to compound and we begin to slide and we can become more and more and more interested in and invested in systems and structures that ultimately hurt people, that ultimately are the evil, because we are infatuated, we are invested, we are so connected to those systems that we become perverted in our spirit 
and begin supporting those systems that ultimately hurt lots of people. What Revelation shows is the very dramatic and extreme ends of those two choices, right? At this point in chapter 16, the creation has gone to two polar opposites, God and not God, right? And the way that John represents all of this symbolically is you've got God and the Lamb and Christ and the Spirit, and then you've got over here the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. Effectively, our choices send us one way or the other. I don't think that the vision of God we see in Revelation is inconsistent with the God we have seen throughout the rest of the Bible. It's simply that what we see here is extreme black and white, is extreme polarization of good and evil. Consistent, but extreme. I hope that makes sense. We'll continue to unpack all of that as well. Um, Kimberly writes, so I'm thinking we're seeing wrath as repercussions. Haha, -ha, that's a great way of saying this. God's spirit or identity kind of takes two shapes. And the nature of God is that much of the time, God allows the creation to kind of reap its own rewards or destructions, right? God does not... A child gets cancer and dies. The parents, of course, prayed that God would save their child, but their child died anyway. Did God choose not to save that child? In the purest sense, could God save any of us from our kind of human experience? Of course, because remember, God is God. But we know that most often, God isn't picking and choosing who lives and dies, and for those of you who might have been with me for only a short amount of time, um, I remember last year we got into this big discussion, gosh, it may have been two years ago, where I said, God is not invested in us not dying. And that kind of exploded the whole groups. So I'll say that again. We often lull, our, lull ourselves into thinking that God is highly invested in us staying alive. Why? Why would God be invested in us staying alive? Except for maybe we would like to stay alive. If we really believe all of this, then we know this life is not the end. That when we die here, we don't, our life does not end. We are simply transitioned. We are transformed into some other better reality. And at some level, we are more one with, more whole, more complete with God. If that's all true, which I believe it is, why is God that concerned with us not dying? That flies in the face of much of what, of how I think a lot of us live, which is right, we get sick, we pray, please, we don't wanna die, or a loved one, God, especially a child, I mean, there's nothing worse, right, than your child being sick or injured or even dying. Nothing is worse. 
And although there is pain and heartbreak and mourning and grief and confusion, y'all, our story is life is not over for any of us when we live this life of faith. God loves us enough that life is not over. Life is just transformed. We don't know how. I don't know how. But that's our faith, which means... You know, in the end, God doesn't want us to be heartbroken or in pain. But in the grand scheme of things, is that actually the worst thing that could happen? No. Because for everyone we've lost, they have this new reality in life with God. It may not be what we want. We certainly want our loved ones with us right now. Of course we do. But in a sense, God most often doesn't intervene to prevent pain. Eh, that's hard. That's a hard message. But it's, a, it's true. It's just most of the time. And now we all know somebody who gets sick, they should have died, they are saved, thank God right? People prayed, the power of prayer. I love all that stuff. There's no problem with that at all. I pray for people to be healed every day. But I want us to stop short of creating a system in which some prayers are answered, some prayers are not, because some people live and some people die. That's a really problematic system. If in the heat of the moment we need to think a certain thing just to kind of get through and cope, no problem. But if we are all outside of a crisis right now, I want us to just entertain this idea that God isn't picking and choosing who lives and who dies all day, every day. Most of the time, God allows us to use our gifts to live the way we are to live in the world, right? God gives us Jesus, as an example, God gives us the Spirit as a guide, and it is through our own community together, the work that we do together, that we help either move toward God or move away from God. The hope is, through our communities, our faith communities, we're constantly moving closer and closer to God. That kind of anchor of faith is such that we always believe tomorrow can be better. No matter what we have done, even if we've done excellent things in the past, as disciples, we're called to think the best is yet to come. That's a being people of faith. And so what we see here in Revelation, as Kimberly notes, God's wrath is really allowing all of the people moving away from God to catch momentum and to catch power such that the forces of evil collect together as powerfully as they ever have. Because the story of Revelation is that even though evil may be as strong as it can be, the evil will never overcome the good of God. That's the message of Revelation. That's our faith. That's what we hold on to, is that no matter how bad things seem, God can always overcome the evil.
The Bible is creation to recreation. The reason Genesis and Revelation bookend, begin and end the Bible, is because we get the first two chapters of Genesis, creation. The last two chapters of Revelation, recreation. That's the whole arc. Our hope is that at some unknown point in the future, God will bring about a complete, total renewal, a recreation, a return to the perfection that God always intended before we, in our human messiness, screwed it all up. There you go. Okay. I am way off script. So I'm going to try and figure out where I was. We haven't even really touched on the first four blanks. <laughs> um, all right, so let's, let's get in. So let's go back to actually chapter 16. We're going to run through these first four plagues. They're relatively self-explanatory. Let's look at all four of them. These are the natural plagues. First is on earth. This bowl is poured out on the earth. The earth causes sores and pain among the people. Two, the second bowl is poured out into the sea or the salt water and everything in the sea, in the oceans, dies. All living things dies. Third, the bowl is poured out into the rivers, the fresh water. So you see that? You've got salt water, number two, fresh water, number three. Everything is unusable, undrinkable, and dies. So you've got all the water now, salt and fresh, turned to blood. Everything is either dead in the water or is unusable in the sense that we can't drink it, right? So the people now are going without water. Fourth plague is the sun. The sun is given the freedom, so to speak, to scorch the people on the earth. Those are kind of the four natural plagues. The earth, the water, the sun itself has all backfired and begins to attack the creation, attack the people who have yet to repent, those who are faithful to the beast. These first four plagues, as the natural elements of creation, show that God's indignation, right, the wrath that is really the indignation, means that God's kind of said, okay, let it go. And the evil is just exacerbated. These bowls of wrath add fuel to the fire of the evil on the earth. They're kind of goosing the flame so that all of the terrible things that the evil ones are doing flare all at once. And the people who have been following the evil ones begin to blame God rather than seeing that God's not the problem, that the evil is the problem. They are so invested in the evil that they cannot see that God isn't causing the pain, but that all of the things they love, all of the not God, is what is causing them the pain. It's a perversion of perspective and vision that we see here. Now, this judgment moment, these bowls of wrath, this is total destruction. Before, 
when things happened, maybe a third of people died, or maybe a quarter of the animals died, or something like that. Now, in this moment, in chapter 16, like I said, this is the beginning of the end, we're seeing that with each bowl of wrath poured out, it is total destruction. So when the second bowl is poured into the salt water, everything is dead. When the third bowl is poured into the rivers, everything is blood and unusable. At this point, the storyline is becoming extremely polarized, as I noted earlier. Nobody's really in the middle. There's no real break or time for repentance the way there has been moments of pause for repentance in previous chapters. We are now rolling toward the end. And so repentance is kind of just not really an opportunity at this point. Okay, let's press on to the second part of today. Um, I had a note, please keep asking questions or making comments. I think they're super helpful. Um, I did have a question from a couple weeks ago, our last study. Um, Shelly wrote to me and said that the study from two weeks ago made her wonder about a news report she saw about a 95-year-old Nazi living in Tennessee being identified and deported back to Germany. Um, we discussed judgment and repentance, and she said it would be very hard, even impossible, to have a judge here or in Germany who would consider a path of reconciliation. There's a huge and understandable desire to punish people who have done really horrible things. And is there a Christian way to look at this differently because it would be so hard? It's a great idea for us to wrestle with what repentance really means. I believe Shelley is referencing um, a couple weeks ago when I spoke of the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that came out of South Africa. There are few examples in our modern world like the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that were formed in post-apartheid South Africa that give good examples of people who genuinely understand the power of repentance and reconciliation. Most of the time when I speak with people about reconciliation or something even more simple like forgiveness, they struggle with the idea of forgiveness because it almost seems as if forgiveness is condoning the wrong. And most of the time, people either decide to forgive or not to forgive based on whether the person is sorry or not sorry. Um, so it depends on the person who did the wrong, whether they wish to repent, and then that forgiveness and then reconciliation can be achieved. And I think that puts the onus on the wrong party. I often say to people, forgiveness should not be determined based on whether the person who wronged you wants to be forgiven. Forgiveness should be because you, the one wronged, deserve to find peace. So I'll say that a little differently. Reconciliation 
does not have to be dependent on whether the person who did the wrong repents. Reconciliation can be achieved, although perhaps imperfectly, if the person who is wronged seeks to honor the humanity of the person who did the wronging. Now we see this in the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa. There were people who were horribly abused, who sat face to face with their abuser and forgave them whether or not the abuser was sorry. What happened in many of these conversations, more, than, more often than not, the abuser observing the power of forgiveness actually discovered their own desire to reconcile. The person who was wronged reclaims the power and speaks forgiveness and reconciliation such that the person who did the wronging can be transformed. This is very countercultural to us here in America, but we have seen examples of this. Uh, let, before I go on, let me say, there is hardly anything more Christ-like than seeking to honor the human, humanity the dignity, the, the godness in a person who has hurt you so deeply. We see the model of Christ as one who, even on the cross, speaks words of forgiveness, right? We see the story of Jesus on the cross between the criminals speaking words of forgiveness. We see Jesus on the cross speaking words of forgiveness to those who crucified them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That is perhaps the very example that we can use to speak words of forgiveness and reconciliation, even when the person or the people or the systems or the structures who hurt us do not seek reconciliation themselves. We who are hurt can reclaim the power of love and of dignity and of humanity in order to seek to make wrong right. We saw this, I mean, let, let me just pause to say, <laughs> last week we saw two horrific shootings, Atlanta and Boulder, which just is it's disheartening and frustrating and makes me angry and, you know, whatever. We don't have to talk about the specifics. But whenever something like this happens, and it happens too often, I cannot help but recall what happened in Charleston, where the members of Emanuel AME, after the unthinkable murder of those faithful members of the church who had gathered in prayer and Bible study, within, what was it? Was it within 72 hours? They were at court speaking to the man who had killed their loved ones, words of forgiveness. And it was stunning. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go read 
what the family members and loved ones of those murdered in Charleston, what, is that like six or seven years ago now? Eight maybe? The words they spoke to the person who had killed their loved ones were words of dignity and words of forgiveness. And they did not become that kind of Christ follower, faithful person in two to three days. What we saw on display there was the result of a lifetime of understanding what it is I'm talking about right now, of understanding the power of Christ when you who have been hurt can reclaim the gift of love and dignity, honoring every person, regardless of whether or not they hurt you. When they sat face to face with that man who killed their loved ones and spoke those words of love, they were working out their faith on a global stage. And it was incredible to watch. What they did, what was done in South Africa, what is done in small ways every day, is something that is countercultural and incredibly faithful. What we see here in Revelation in chapter 16 is a run-up to the ultimate end where God's goodness is worked out over evil for good. And it's important for us to apply this to our own lives or else it's just theoretical. It's a good story. It's a dramatic, fantastic story unless we can somehow take the truth of that story and hit the ground, give it legs, make it connect with our actual day-to-day lives. And repentance or not is one of those ways where we can actually find a connection point. Okay, I've been talking too much. Um, I saw a bunch of texts pop. Let me just look real fast. Okay, Um, so Kimberly asks, uh, different Kimberly, um, asks if the people who do not have the mark of the beast and worship him suffer along with everyone else in these bowls of wrath. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, it seems like, at least in this chapter, there is no distinction between those who don't, uh, no, let me say it this way. We don't know clearly that those without the mark of the beast go through this period safely. We are told that those with the mark suffer. It's sort of silent on what happens to the other people. Most interpretations of Revelation acknowledge that the faithful go through the trials and the tribulation period along with those who are followers of the beast. Perhaps it's to a lesser degree, but I think we cannot, if in fact the water has turned to blood, 
both salt and fresh. The sun is scorching. I think it's affecting everybody. We don't know for sure, but it seems as if those who are faithful are receiving these negative impacts as well, which put in historic context makes good sense. Because remember the purpose of John writing this letter is to strengthen the Christian faithful who will be experiencing horrible pressure, pain, torture, and death at the hands of the Roman Empire. John's not meaning for this to be like a happy, you know, successory that someone puts up on their wall. He's writing this letter to people who are going to be going through extremely painful processes over the next decades, even centuries, and saying, hang in, because God's working all of this out for the good. And in the end, God wins. I mean, that's the whole message, right? And so no matter what pain you go through in your life, God will win. So it makes sense that in this process, the people who are faithful to the beast, those who have chosen evil, would be hurt along with those who have chosen the good and happen still to be on earth. Let me just say for the good, this is all symbolic. This is not predictive. So do not read Revelation as all of these things will happen at some point. Read Revelation much deeper than that. Get at these truths about choosing good and choosing evil, about systems of the world that persuade us to move away from God. Read this as a challenge to our positions of power that we not be so invested in our own power that we hurt other people along the way, but instead use the power, the gifts, the authority that we have to help as many people as we can. That's really the deep message of Revelation, not about predicting the future. Just want to say it again. Okay, let's jump into the last three plagues because I only have 10 minutes. So jump back in to verse 10. We're going to just read the rest of it so that we are all familiar with what happens 5, 6, and 7. And then we'll get into unpacking this a little bit. Sorry, I'm very long-winded today. I missed you last week, so I had a lot to say. So verse 10, let's go. The fifth angel poured his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up in order to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw three foul spirits, like frogs, coming from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. These are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. See, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and is clothed, not going about naked and exposed to shame." And they assembled, all at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a violent earthquake, such as had not occurred since people were upon the earth. 
So violent was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. God remembered great Babylon and gave her the wine cup of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains there were to be found. And huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, dropped from heaven on people until they cursed God for the plague of the hail. So fearful was that plague. Now, these last three plagues seem to be a bit separate from the first four, right? It's not kind of the earth or natural plagues. These are a bit more unnatural plagues. Um, yet there's no gap. There's no time in between any of them, right? They just go in succession, one through seven. Let's consider each of these last three plagues. Fifth, this is a direct attack on the beast, plunging the kingdom into darkness. This is a strike at the very heart of the wickedness of creation, of the evil in creation itself. This is not likely meant to be a specific place, but as I noted earlier, you kind of go deeper than the storyline itself. This isn't meant to go to a place, but really to a system, right? There is a system and a structure on earth that lifts up the evil, and what God is doing with this fifth bowl is pouring the wrath upon the structure that has allowed the evil to flourish. Make sense? We see that there is indignation in the people. There is no repentance. People experience all of this, and they still do not repent. We get to the sixth plague. The sixth plague dries up the great river Euphrates, preparing the way for the kings from the east, this echoes the fear that we've already encountered in Revelation, right? This, this is one of those ideas that from the East comes the danger to the civilization. From the East comes nations and empires, kings, who can undermine all of the structures that the people love. So it strikes fear into the heart of those who are in power in the West. Remember, this is first century. Rome is powerful, but Rome's not the only powerful nation on earth. There are nations in the East, think Persia and others, who can threaten Rome. Rome knows its history. Rome knows that power and strength is fleeting. And so there are ways, there are triggers to remind them of the fear and in the uncertainty that their strength and their authority may not last forever. And this gets at the danger that can come from the outside. There are three foul spirits representing like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. This echoes as well one of the plagues of Egypt, right? This idea of frogs, there's something kind of slimy, gross about frogs, even though I love frogs. Really what this is, is reminding people that God has done plagues like this before. God has used his power to overcome the wickedness and the evil of the world before. So what has happened will happen again. God's strength is not changed. God simply chooses not to intervene like this most of the time. But here we see an intervention like people may remember from the past with Moses and Pharaoh in Egypt. Then we see that the evil ones begin to gather their armies for battle and they assemble them in a place called Armageddon, right? Oh, Armageddon, there you go. Sometimes it is pronounced without the H or written without the H. Armageddon 
is a transliteration of a place outside of the city of Megiddo in Israel. Megiddo is a city south, southwest of Nazareth. So it's north of Jerusalem on the trade route between Egypt and Mesopotamia and Persia. So Megiddo was the site of many ancient battles. And it's not necessary to go into which ones, but just to know there are certain places where battles tend to take place because the typography tends to allow for a better struggle, a better fight, whatever. I don't know. I'm not a general. So there are just places, and Megiddo happens to be one of those. We're kind of outside the city. There are some hills that create a very natural battlefield. And so, again, John is not intending for his readers then or for us now to imagine that the plains of Megiddo will be the place where the final battle happens. It's not about that. John's simply acknowledging that a battle is coming and he's pinging a bell in his readers' minds of a place where many battles have taken place over the centuries. So it kind of makes sense, right? They would fight on the plains of Megiddo, sure. And we see that in Greek as Armageddon. Seventh bowl is poured into the air. What is the air? Well, in the ancient world, the air was the space between heaven and earth. So in a sense, this seventh bowl finishes it all. This seventh bowl really puts a stamp or an exclamation point on this destruction. We see lightning and thunder and earthquakes. The city gets split apart. Islands disappear, mountains crumble, hailstones weighing 100 pounds fall on the people. The end is here, my friends. These seven bowls of wrath have now been poured out, and man, the end has come fast. What these seven bowls of wrath tee up is the very final push to the end, and then, of course, the recreation that we will see in chapters 17 through 20. So we are now set up for what will happen over the next four chapters. Remember that Revelation is not chronological in the sense that what happened in chapter one happens before chapter two, before three, before four. That's not how this works. There are multiple threads of storylines that are told in sequence, but are meant to happen concurrently. We see kind of a big arc toward the end of the story. And then when we go into chapter 17, we almost kind of step back a moment to see what else is happening while these bowls of wrath are being poured out. A quick note. In verse 15, we see this weird sentence injected in the middle of these bowls of wrath, right? Between bowls Really, it's before even the sixth bowl is kind of completed. And it's this interesting phrase that is meant to keep people awake, right? We see in verse 15, See, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and is clothed, not going about naked and exposed to shame. I hope that we all understand this note because... Jesus told multiple stories in the Gospels 
about staying awake. The idea here is not to not sleep. It's a spiritual waking. It's a spiritual wokeness where we actually stay alert to the good and the evil in the world. That we stay energized and connected and engaged to the hard work of discerning the good and the evil. Our world is so complicated that we could easily sort of just give it up and throw up our hands and say, just, it's too hard, right? I'm just gonna go about doing our things. We could do the same thing here with this letter. John actually seems to understand humanity pretty well, and he takes a moment to say, hey, 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 listen, this is important stuff. Stay awake, stay with me. Because he knows if you're going bowl one, bowl two, bowl three, bowl four, bowl five, I mean, by the time you get to bowl six, you're like, what in the world is going on? And you can just be overwhelmed by the detail of the story. And John says, stay with me, because this is important. What we are doing together here, the information he is communicating, the great deep theological truths of this story are too important to miss. And so there in, chat, in verse 15, we get a little wake up call that says, ah, 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 we're not done yet. This is important, hang in. Next week, we're going to get into the shift that is hinted in verse 19. God remembered great Babylon and gave her the wine cup of the fury of his wrath. Babylon's going to come back here. Remember, when you see Babylon, read Rome. And we're going to see that connection made over these next few chapters, starting with chapter 17, that launches off of this pad from chapter 16. Now, before you go, don't go yet. I want to plant a little seed. We have not decided what we are going to study next year. Two years ago, I asked the question, what would you all like to study? And the number one response I got was Revelation. And I said to you, I wanted to do Genesis before Revelation, because it really is that bookend, creation and recreation. So for the last two years, we've known what we were doing. Genesis with Daniel and then Revelation. Next year, we don't know. And so I want to plant the seed. If you've got an idea or a recommendation about what we might study next school year together, I would love to hear from you. You can make a comment here in the notes, or even better, send Meredith a quick email. We'll start to collect ideas over these next few weeks, and I hope by the time we get to the end in May, we'll have a clear idea of what we'd all like to study together next school year. So I hope you've enjoyed this. Revelation's getting good. We only have a few weeks left. Our final lesson is May 5th. I look forward to seeing you all here next week. Until then, God bless you all. Join us for Palm Sunday on Sunday, and then make your plans for Easter in a week and a half. See you soon.